Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. All right, September 29th, 2008. Some of you guys uh, who work in the financial industry will know automatically what I'm, what I'm talking about. That's the day that the Dow Jones fell more than it has ever fallen in any single day. Uh, it fell by 700-something points. Major, bl- major banks uh, declared bankruptcy. Uh, insurance giants had to take on bailouts. And there was billions of dollars that people lost on that day, one of the greatest financial crises in the history of our nation. And as you can imagine, in in the aftermath of that, there's a question that starts to get thrown around. And that question is, who's to blame? Why did all this happen? How could this possibly have happened? And, and something interesting has happened in the, in the wake of that. Certainly, as, as individuals, we typically think in terms of that. But the banks were asking that same question. That They were, a lot of the times, the ones that were, were receiving the blame. But many of them were also saying, man, we didn't see this coming either. Who is to blame? And, and a very interesting thing that took place is, is that a lot of banks began suing other banks. Uh, there was this phenomenon that was going on. Everyone's kind of saying, hey, whose fault is this? How did these toxic investments get bought up? Uh, was it that people were, were selling us uh, a bill of goods and they, they lied to us about it? And so there were all kinds of people that were coming out and there were banks that were coming out and they were suing other banks. About a year after this happened, uh, This American Life took a look into a lot of these different cases. And there were they found at least 196 different cases of banks that were suing other banks. Most of those were fairly simple. The idea was, you lied to us. Whoever sold them that bond or whoever sold them that CDO, they were saying, hey, you didn't tell us the truth about this. You, you, met, you misled us. You You made us think that this was going to be a good investment when in reality you knew that this was going to blow up in our faces. That was most of the cases. But one case was a little bit different, and that's the case of Citigroup. One of the largest financial institutions in America at the time, the largest bank in the United States. Uh, and, And in this case, rather than a bank suing another bank, it was the shareholders of Citigroup that, sh- that sued their own bank. They sued themselves. That's weird. That's an odd thing to do. Uh, what they said was that they were misled whenever they bought into the company, that, that Citigroup had, they had sold these assets to companies that they actually owned. These toxic assets that, were, that they knew were going to fall apart, uh, that they were making it look as if those had gone away. But in reality, what they were doing was they were selling it to companies that they already owned. And so they were still on the hook for that money. And the people that bought in were saying, hey, what the heck? How, you, you didn't tell us about this. Citigroup, in their defense, said, why would we do that? Why would we lie about ourselves? Why would we intentionally torpedo our own company? And yet, in 2013, 
uh, just five years after it took place, the lawsuit was settled in favor of the shareholders for $530 million. Significant chunk of change. Yes. (laughs) Yes. What's interesting in this case is that Everyone is, is refusing to accept the blame, even when the Citigroup uh, made this settlement. It was a settlement. It was not a rewarded, uh, the court case was never decided. They just decided to settle out of court. And what they said was, we, we do not accept blame. We're not acknowledging that what our shareholders had said is true. We, did, we don't believe that what they're saying is true. And the shareholders kept saying, we don't believe that what you're saying is true. And so everybody's pointing fingers and they're all saying, no, Citigroup is to blame. No, the shareholders are to blame. And, and we're left with that same question. Who is to blame? Who was to blame for this giant crisis? Maybe it wasn't either one of them. Maybe it was this greater corrupt system that they were involved in. And, and the blame goes around and around and, and all kinds of people are brought into it. And the irony of it is that in all the blame going around, the one group, the one person that they never actually look to is themselves. In Numbers 20, Israel and Moses have a crisis of their own. They're in a desert with no water and a similar blame game starts to emerge. And my goal today is to show you that in all the finger pointing and blaming of others, we actually learn a whole lot about ourselves. Our tendency is to be just like Citigroup and its shareholders, just like Israel and just like Moses. And our great need is to realize that blaming others is not the first place that we need to start. Turn with me to Numbers 21 through 13. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we have some of those in the back. We'd love for you to take one of those as a gift from us. You can read along with me. The entire Israelite community entered the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and they settled in Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. That's Moses' sister. There was no water for the community. So they assembled against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had perished when our brothers died before the Lord. Why have you brought us into the wilderness and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain and figs and vines and pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, Take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch, and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and for their livestock. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff so that abundant water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me, To demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. These are the waters of Meribah, 
where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and he demonstrated his holiness to them. This starts in a place called Kadesh. If, if you've read the book of Numbers, you remember one of the, the previous sermons, you might, that name might sound familiar to you. That was the place where Israel was whenever they first sent spies into the land of Canaan to see if it was a place like God had told them. Is it a land that flows with milk and honey? Is it a, is it a land that we feel like we can conquer? So that, that's the place where they're back again. And, and last time, there was an oasis here. There's all this water But this time, they get there, no water. Have you ever been on a road trip? Not like the fun kind with your college friends, like with your family. Um, You know, I... I grew up in a family with five siblings. We drove in in an eight-passenger van. Every single one of us had a very assigned seat. There was a death march playing as we carried our bags to the car. Bum, 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 bum. We were miserable. We had to drive 11 hours to Illinois to go see my grandparents. Oh my gosh, there is so much corn in Illinois. And, and ah oh man, who farted? And then who brought the sour cream and onion chips? That's worse than the fart. Israel had been wandering in a desert for 40 years a long time. This is at the end of the curse that God had given them whenever they refused to go in the promised land. They were, they were sentenced to go back into the desert and wander around for 40 years. This is towards the end of that time. So they've been wandering around for 40 years. They're about to get back to Kadesh. They're like, oh, the oasis. You know, they see the sign. Kadesh, 15 miles. Their, their mouths are watering as they lead their camels along. And they're, they're so excited, we are going to get water. And then they pull off the exit, oasis closed. There's no water. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And it, what happens, but exactly what happens on your road trip, the accusations start to fly. Are you serious, Moses? Why couldn't we have just died suddenly like our brothers? At least they got swallowed up by the earth. We're dying of dehydration. We can't live in a desert, Moses. Deserts don't have water. This isn't an oasis. This is an evil, waterless place. You are an evil man, Moses. Kadesh is the worst place ever. Why did we come on this trip? None of the things that you said that were going to be here are here. There's no vines. There's no figs. There's no pomegranates. We don't even have water to drink. It's pretty easy to be like Israel in these moments, isn't it? When things get difficult, our first instinct is to do what? To blame somebody else. We don't have water and they start that chant. Moses, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. Israel doesn't get what they want. Their expectations aren't met. Their circumstances are difficult. So what do they do? They look for a fall guy. And Moses is right here. Moses, you lied about these investments. You misled us. You said this was a place of milk and honey. But here we are. And there's no water. You're a liar. And we do the same thing. When circumstances don't go our way... We look for somebody else to blame. So for for you, as you think about this, who do you blame for the problems that are in your life? When we have marriage problems, do we blame our spouses? 
Oh, the problem is that he won't listen to me. Or the problem is that she doesn't respect me. Well, welcome to the blame game. This is the game that's been being played ever since the creation of humanity. What happens when the very first difficult circumstance comes to Adam and Eve? Well, she's the one who gave me the fruit to eat. Well, he's the one who didn't, bl- didn't warn me about talking snakes. When faced with problems and difficulties, what we do, rather than looking inward, we tend to look outward and, and blame it on somebody else. Rather than suing ourselves for wrongdoing, we forget the evidence that's, that's up against us and we push it on to somebody else. But hold on a minute, Israel. Why is it that you were in the, the desert in the first place? Why was it that you had to wander around for 40 years? Remember the last time that they were in Kadesh. They wouldn't go into the promised land. God had promised. He said, this is an amazing land. It's going to be incredible. But when they sent up spies to check out the land, they came back and they gave a bad report. They said, guys, these guys are pretty big. I don't think we're going to be able to take them. There's a lot, we got a whole vine of huge grapes, but the people guarding them are massive. They've got these huge fortresses. They're trained in warfare. I don't think we're going to be able to take them. And because of their disbelief and their failure to trust in God, that is why they had to go back into the desert in the first place. They rebelled against God. It was their sin that got them in the desert. It wasn't Moses' idea to go back in the desert. It was their sinful disbelief that got them there. But now, facing the consequences of their own sin and disbelief, do they own their sin? Do they take the blame on themselves? Well, what do we do in that moment with inconvenient circumstances and difficulty? Husbands and wives, are you willing to admit that you might have some sin in your own life? Could you ask your spouse for feedback and then just sit back and listen? No defensiveness, no trying to justify yourself, just hear and learn. Teenagers and kids, I know you would never blame your parents for anything. I never did that. We're good people, right? But have you considered that your parents don't just give you rules to make your life miserable? That maybe they actually do know something about what's happening in your life that you might not understand. Amen. Amen, preacher. Talk about the kids. Tell them their problems. Don't tell them ours. College students, are all your teachers buffoons? Is it always that person with a PhD that, that seems to be messing up the grading system and, and, and the way that this whole scheduling thing for when your assignments are due works out? Have you considered that maybe you didn't read the syllabus? Maybe, maybe it is your fault that you got a bad grade. Employees, is your boss the reason for all your troubles? Is it your coworkers that make your, your environment so difficult to work in? Have you thought about whether the place where you work might be better if your heart was in a better place? Church members and churchgoers, is the church always failing to meet your needs? Is, it, is nobody reaching out to you? Have you considered that what it might take to make your church a healthier place is to be the person that does those things that you long to happen? 
Who are you reaching out to that is in need? Who are you trying to counsel and love that desperately needs your help? It's easy to look at circumstances and to blame other people. What's hard to do is look at these circumstances and acknowledge how we have contributed to those things taking place. So what we desperately need to do is we need to look into our own hearts. A couple questions. Do you have a victim mentality? What I mean by that, are your failures always someone else's fault? Do you look at past wounds in your life and use those as excuses for your own behavior? Guys, you can't receive the grace of God until you acknowledge that you need it yourself. We need to recognize that first we are sinners and second we are sinned against. It's true, you may have been hurt. Every single person in this room has been injured by someone else's sin. And yet, that hurt does not excuse your sin. Are you defensive? Do you have to be right? Can you not hear others' feedback without explaining away the feedback that they've given? One of the most loving things that has ever happened to me is about seven years ago when two of my best friends sat me down and they looked at me in the face and they said, Elisha, you are defensive. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anybody tell you that you're defensive, but it's really hard to defend yourself against that. I, was, I, was, I wanted to, of course, because I was defensive. But I couldn't. I had to just take it on the chin and acknowledge, man, these guys love me or they wouldn't say something like that. So Israel shifts the blame to Moses. They say, man, this place is terrible. You're terrible, Moses. How could you do this to us? And yet, what does Moses do? Is he without blame in this thing? Well, the humblest man on the face of the earth reacts with pride and arrogance. And he does what so often we do in that rather than suing ourselves, we pretend like we are the judge. Well, what's going on in Moses' mind? Well, well, remember, he's had a lot of tough things going on. His sister dies at the beginning of this passage. Um, That was probably difficult for him. And now he's got an entire congregation of people, tons of people, blaming him for their own sin. Not for the first time either. This has happened many times before. Well, Well, Moses, at first, he responds pretty well. It says he goes and he falls face down before the Lord. That's, a, that's definitely a good thing to do, as we learned from Brandon a few weeks ago. Moses and Aaron, they're the leaders of this people, and, and their authority has been questioned. They may be fearful for their own lives. The, the last time this had happened, they got threat, they were, the uh, congregation threatened to stone them. So they, they're worried, they're probably fearful. Um, and they come, and, and God gets behind them. He says, take the staff. The staff was a symbol of authority. This staff was one that that God had had almonds sprout on to show in an earlier instance when Moses and Aaron's authority was challenged. He he took this staff and he said, hey, I want to show by this staff, you are the people that I've chosen, Moses and Aaron. You're the ones that I want to lead, not these other rebels that are coming up against you. And so that staff was a symbol of authority. When God says, take the staff, God is saying, I got your back, guys. I'm going to stand up for you. I'm going to fight for you. And then God tells them to go and speak to the rock in front of all the people. And he'll bring forth water. 
So God intends to use Moses and Aaron as vehicles for a miracle to provide for the needs of the people. And the people then, of course, would be reminded that God is uh, empowering Moses and Aaron to lead and serve on their behalf. So Moses and Aaron go out. They gather the people together. And it kind of seems like, basically, they do what God says. At least it was kind of close. When I first read this passage, when I first read this passage, that's what I thought. I was like, seems like they kind of did it, right? Well, let's look at all that, all that Moses says. He says, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? And then he hits the rock twice. Water comes out. Well, shouldn't everybody be good? Like the water came out. What's the problem? Well, the problem, let's, let's think about that. You rebels. That's a different attitude that we're seeing from Moses than he's had in his previous interactions where he is uh, interceding on the behalf of the people. There's something different going on here. Moses is frustrated with the people of Israel. He's angry at them. Then he says, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Wait a second, Moses, we? You and Aaron, you're gonna bring water out of the rock? I thought that was what God was going to do. Moses is putting himself in the place of God so that he can validate himself before the eyes of Israel. He makes himself the judge and Israel the the guilty defendant. Rather than suing ourselves, we pretend to be the judge. And that's exactly what Moses does right here. Look, Israel, you bunch of rebels. You want water? I'll give you water. I got this staff right here, and I'm about to kabam it twice. I'll give you some water. It seems like a small thing, right? And yet, remember where these people had come from. They were coming from Egypt, a land where Yahweh, this God that is talking to Moses and Israel, was not worshipped. In fact, there were all kinds of other gods that were worshipped. They had magicians that would do some of the same things whenever, whenever Moses goes before Pharaoh uh, and he'll do these, these uh, amazing feats. Some of the magicians could do the same things uh, probably by some form of demon worship or magic or whatever you want to call it. So when Moses takes this and slams it against the rock, he is acting like an Egyptian magician. When they're looking at Moses and they see him do, do this, they hear no mention of God, they only see Moses do it. They're looking at Moses like David Blaine. They're like, whoa, how'd you bring that water out of that rock? How did you just throw up that frog? That's really disgusting and yet amazing. They aren't seeing God as provider. They're not seeing his holiness and mercy. They're just looking at Moses like he's the one who's awesome. And so God says to Moses, you didn't trust me, Moses. You didn't trust me to defend your authority. I was going to defend you. I was going to validate you before them. And now, because you didn't do that, the people are not worshiping me. They're not actually worshiping God. They're worshiping you, Moses. Moses stole what was rightfully God's, and he did it for his own gain, to protect his name before Israel. Moses forgot that any greatness that he possessed was given to him by God in the first place, the ultimate authority. 
We are more like Israel than unlike them, and we're more like Moses too. In positions of authority, we can resent the problems that come up. We can view people as an inconvenience. We can view complaints as a personal attack and feel, feel the need to fight back against it. I struggle with that. When my eight-month-old eight Jack, when he spits up, man, he doesn't hold back. There's like no warning. It's like you're hitting like a Coke machine for just a second uh, and then pulling it back. It just comes out really, really, really fast. And if you're in the splash zone, then you are covered. Even my 95 Ford Explorer, when I'm filling it up with gas, has a cutoff valve. Like it knows when to stop. But my son just keeps eating and eating and eating, and he'll throw up on us like five times every meal. And I have to admit that sometimes I don't, I, that doesn't happen to me, and I think, you know, um, this is just an opportunity to care for my son. I think, this is just annoying. Why don't you just learn when to stop eating? <laughs> or when somebody drops the ball when I've given them something to do. Rather than view that as an opportunity to help this person develop and grow into a man of God or a woman of God, my first thought is often, why you got to make me call you out? I got other stuff to do. Like, I don't have time to, to help you grow and develop. A job where you help people is really easy until you have to start helping people. That's how I feel a lot of the time. When an inconvenient circumstance pops up in your life, how do you respond? Men, some of us, we can solve problems at work all the time, but at home, what happens? When problems come up with your spouse or your kids, your roommates, do you fly into a rage like Moses? Must I bring juice to, uh, for you from this fridge? <laughs> or are you passive? Not giving the correction and care of those that desperately need it, that God has put in your care. What about this call that we have from Scripture to love our neighbors? Do we even know our neighbors? Have you ever actually initiated to them? Have you ever knocked on their door and, and talked to them, invited them over to eat? The reason that we would never get as mad at our neighbors as Moses does with Israel is just because oftentimes they aren't in our lives. We insulate each other so much from one another's problems that we wouldn't get mad at each other because we're not actually giving ourselves a chance to love each other. The cultural norm is, is to do that, right? Is to cut ourselves off. But we don't want to be like the world around us. We're supposed to be different. If we cut ourselves off into a Christian bubble or a white middle-class bubble through the schools that we attend, the neighborhoods that we live in, the places that we go to play, we're never going to show Christ to the world. Moses got angry with the people because they accused him of not leading them well. And that was wrong. But Moses was actually leading them fairly well. For us, oftentimes, we get mad at the accusations of others, but if we're honest, we're not even leading very well. We're not even serving the way that we should and loving the way that we should. We're not dying to ourselves. We're not initiating to those without Christ. We're not being honest about our weaknesses. And the biggest problem of all for every single one of us is we're not repenting of our idolatry. 
passages in both Deuteronomy 32 and 1 Corinthians 10 talk about the waters of Meribah, this incident that happens in Numbers chapter 20. And they talk about the sin of Israel and the sin of Moses in the exact same way. They use this word to frame it, idolatry. Deuteronomy 32 says this, The Lord alone led Israel with no help from a foreign God. He nourished them with honey from the rock. Israel abandoned the God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with different gods. The sin of Moses and Israel is that they forgot God. When Israel faced a trying circumstance, no water in this desert land, they forgot it was God who led them there. They forgot their previous deliverance from Egypt by the hand of God. They forgot the other times when they faced tests like this where they had no water, no food, and God was the one who provided. They forgot that when they cried out for rescue, it was God who rescued them. They forgot that it was God that led them with a cloud and fire when they did not know where to go. And when they were in danger of armies coming and attacking them at any moment, God was the one who was with them every step of the way. Moses forgot that he came to God trembling, terrified that he had to go to to Pharaoh and speak on Israel's behalf. And it was God that equipped Moses. It was God that sanctified his mouth so that he could speak. It was God that gave him boldness so that he could approach Pharaoh. And And it was God that stood behind him and gave him the strength to perform these miracles so that the the pagan king would let the people of God go. Every step of the way, it was God. And they forgot. And we forget too. Oftentimes when we look at this passage, we think, well, what should God do with a rebellious people like Israel? A rebellious people like us. And, it, and at first glance, it's kind of like, well, that seemed really small. Like Moses hitting that rock, that's not really that big a deal. Why, why are we making such a big deal out of this thing? Shouldn't we just say, well, good try, man. That's close enough. Got, got people the water. But when we, when we look at it like that, we're actually asking the wrong question. We're, we're, when we say, why was God's judgment so severe? We're asking the wrong question. We should instead look at a surprising turn that takes place in the story. The thing that's surprising is that when Moses acts like a magician, rebels against God, a heart full of anger towards the people and hits the rock, water still comes out. Why did the water still come out? The mercy of God is what is incredibly surprising in this passage. What's crazy is that though we are guilty in so many circumstances, God surprises us with His mercy. Why would God give all those rebellious people water? Why would God not discredit Moses when he did this rebellious act? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, God gives a little clue as to why he would have done that. It says that the rock that Israel drank from was Jesus, that it was Christ. 
Jesus is the rock who was struck and his blood poured out to give life to all the people. The gracious waters of Meribah are a picture of the gracious Son of God. God, the righteous judge, doesn't give us the verdict that we deserve because Jesus takes our case and absorbs our guilt. In a world of blame shifting, finger pointing, Jesus takes the fall. He takes our debt on himself. He dies for it and he gives us a new account with his perfect righteousness where we are now rich instead of being guilty, waiting to be condemned for a crime. The undeserved waters of, uh, at Meribah poured out for Israel and the undeserved blood of Jesus Christ pours out for us. So the big question for all of us then is, will we drink? Psalm 81 that Jacob read from earlier today talks about the waters of Meribah too. And one of the lessons that it says that God was trying to get the people of Israel to see is this in Psalm 81.10. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Jesus in John uh, 4.14 says something very similar. He says, but whoever, in his conversation with Samaritan woman at a well, he says, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him, he'll never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. He said, whoever drinks from me will never be thirsty again. God's desire with Israel was not to dehydrate them in the desert. And God's desire with you and me is not to do that either. God's desire is to satisfy us with himself. To to cause us to look to him in those moments of difficulty, in those circumstances where we thought we were about to arrive at an oasis and there is no water. Where we are in a very difficult circumstance and we don't understand it and it seems like there's no way out. God wants to meet us right there. He's not against us. In those difficult circumstances in our lives, they're meant to be like a little salt tablet that would make us thirsty for something more. Showing us that this world is not where life is going to be found. We gotta look to a well that's deeper. We gotta look to a source beyond it, to Jesus Christ. And it's very fitting talking about about all these passages about water that today is a day where we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. A small cup of juice that we drink to remember that Jesus' blood was shed, shed for us. A small little wafer that we eat to remember that Christ's body was broken for us. But it's not just to remember. It's also to worship. In the same way that God led them to this place where they didn't have what they needed in the moment... His desire was that they would turn to him and worship. His desire is that they would look to him and they would say, God, you are where my help comes from. I desperately need you right now. And as we, in a few moments, as we take the Lord's Supper, the goal of that is for us to remember that we desperately need the Lord.
that in the problems and the circumstances that you are going to face this, this coming week, that the Lord is the one that you need to depend on to get through it. That He is the one that is going to be with you every step of the way. And so what I'd call you to do is we get ready to take the Lord's Supper is the exact same, th- same thing that these passages call us to do. And that's to repent. It's to look into your own heart and into your own life to see where you are shifting the blame for your own sin to other people. To where you're not acknowledging that the circumstances in your life, you may have actually contributed to those. And God in His wisdom and in His mercy is using those for His glory and for your good to to direct you back to Himself. So where are the the ways that you're turning to things other than the Lord? What are you turning to other than Him? Think about that as we do this. And I'd tell you two other simple things as, as we get ready to take this and then I'll pray for us. At City Church, we do this in small groups. We, we don't just do this by ourselves, but we encourage you to, to take this with the people around you. And the reason is that the church is meant to be like a family, that, that we're meant to be open and honest with each other, welcome one another into each other's lives. Every single person here this morning is a person who is flawed, who is sinful, who has idols in their life that needs to repent. And so there's nothing to be ashamed of and we can come together around this and take this together acknowledging we are a people that wants to say, God, we are sinners, but you are great. We need you this morning and we worship you this morning. The second thing that I'd say is is if you're someone who hasn't received Christ yet, if you don't really believe in Jesus or you haven't surrendered your life to him yet, then don't feel the pressure to take this this morning. You don't have to because this is ultimately an act of worship. And, and if you're not really in a place where you would say that you feel like you're ready to worship the Lord, that's okay. There's no pressure to do this this morning. But what we would, we would encourage you to do is feel free to get into one of those circles and listen as they pray and, and just watch as, as they take it together, okay? So let me pray for us and then there are tables in the back and tables in the front and we can go to get it.